My name is Marla Isaacson, and I am the founder of Like a Boss Girls. We here at Like a Boss Girls are a badass community of women who are defining a new normal and bringing you along with us. We want to empower you to live life on your own terms while giving you the support, encouragement, and information you need to make a living, make a difference, and make it big. The purpose of our Mind of a Mentor series is to showcase women who have experienced significant roadblocks and difficulties in their life and how they overcame these struggles to achieve great success. We believe that these stories will help you gain valuable insights and inspiration to help you on your life's journey. Today, we're honored to have as our guest, Hope Alcazar, author, independent contractor for marketing and PR, and creative ambassador at Examine Inc. Hope is a best-selling author. Her first book entitled, Where Hope Lies, was just recently published. Congratulations, Hope. And we'll talk about this a bit later in our discussion. Hope also has a very diverse background in marketing and digital media in an array of industries, specifically within the fashion and music sectors. A go-getter and entrepreneur, she launched a women's empowerment magazine at the age of 22 and launched her freelance-based media firm at the age of 22 as well. Chicago-born and a Grand Rapids, Michigan native, Hope relocated to New York City in 2014, where she currently resides. Presently, she works remotely as the creative ambassador for a technology startup company based out of Chicago, and also as a music marketing representative for a New York City-based music venues. Hope's journey was not always easy. She battled body image issues and struggled with an eating disorder off and on from the age of 12 until last year as well as significant family issues, including the death of her father when she was only six weeks old, and the impact this had on her family, as well as her brother's serious motorcycle accident. Hope also experienced and survived an unhealthy and toxic relationship and engagement. Welcome, Hope. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we really have a lot to talk about. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start off at the beginning, Hope. Tell me about a little bit about growing up in the Midwest. Tell us about Hope as a child, your community, your family, your friends, that kind of thing. So I was born and raised in Chicago. Um, As you mentioned, my dad passed away when I was six weeks old, and my mom immediately dove into life as a single mom, and my mom is a, a woman very, you know, instills empowerment and strength and courage. And every lesson she's taught us kids and this situation was no different. So from the time I was, you know, a little one, I was taught to stand on your own two feet, to be strong, to hold your own, to follow your gut, use your intuition. And she just did an incredible job of instilling that in me, like I said, from, from day one. While the death of my father was a horrible thing for her to take on, and obviously, you know, the after effects affected me later on in life, I grew up in a very strong Armenian Orthodox family. And I speak to that because the strength and the love and the warmth that comes from a culture like that, um, I'm third generation here, and it's the village helped raise me uh, in so many words. I think that's the best way I can put it. So when my father passed away, I mean, right away, you had the strong Armenian community come forward and take care of me. You know, they continue to do different things along the way, even now that a culture as rich as that. Very similar, you know, Greek, Italian, Hispanic culture. You just have like that really deep-rooted, family-oriented, strong 
background that I really believe runs very deep in my blood and has paved the way for who I am today. My mom remarried when I was five, five and a half years old to the most amazing man ever. And uh, they had, my mom and him had two children together. And so those are my my siblings who I'm sure we'll talk about later on. And then when I was a teenager, we moved to Michigan, where I attended Grand Valley State University for psychology. And uh, then, as again, as you mentioned, I moved on to New York City a couple years ago after a failed engagement and my brother's accident. It really caused me to, to take a second look at life and what I'm doing with my life and how short life is and just take on my dreams. This is amazing. So, you know, let's, again, let's, let's focus on your, on your childhood a little bit. You talked about the closeness and strength of your, of your mother as well as the overall Armenian community. Can you give me an example of where you, you felt the family came together and felt all that love and support? Were there any particular examples that you want to share with our listeners? Sure. I mean, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate if they're from similar cultures. I mean, your problems are everyone else's problems. And I don't mean that in a negative way. Like, they, right. if you have an issue, if you have a struggle, they, guess what? They're going to suffer right along with you. And they're not just going to suffer along with you. They're going to help you find a solution. And they're going to be your strength and your backbone until you can stand alone. And the example of my father passing is my mom, you know, she obviously did a lot herself. Like I said, she's a very independent woman. But you have the church community of, you know, constantly checking in, you know, helping with, you know, my growth or, you know, are you doing okay? Just hosting us for different meals, just making sure that I was strong in my faith. Um, Armenian Orthodox is not just obviously a nationality or culture, but it's a religion as well. Armenia was the first nation to accept Christianity as its national religion. So you have that deep-rooted Christianity as well. And so the, just the whole church came together to make sure my mom and I were okay and supported us. And even now, you know, if there's an issue and, and they see about it on social media, you have people from my church back in Chicago emailing me or calling, are, are you okay? Like, do you need anything? Or why don't you come to Chicago and we'll take you out to dinner? And just It's just this close-knit family community that I just, I truly appreciate. So it sounds like you, and you've said this, that you get a lot of emotional support from this community. And it also sounds like, and from what you said, that your mom really displayed a lot of courage during some of the, the tragedies that she encountered as a young mom. How did your mother's courage and her strength impact your approach to life? Well, my mom, you know, happily married and, and was happily married then and is happily married now. My mom has always instilled in my sister and I that you can love with all your heart, you can trust with all your heart. However, you need to build your world. Uh, whether it be family, career, faith, what you feel about yourself as a woman, you need to form that and build that on your own merit, on, you know, within yourself. Because if God forbid they're taken away or God forbid they choose to walk away, the male in your life or the, the counterpart in your life, you need right. to be able to stand on your own two feet and you cannot crumble. And, and she didn't mean that too intensely by any means. It was just Falling apart and that is not an option in my mother's world, and it is not an option in my sister's and my world. Like, we, we have just been taught to stand very strong on our own two feet as a woman. And, again, it's not to say you can't let people in, which at the beginning when I was still finding my way, I was like, okay, I have to stand on my own as an independent woman, so I can't, I can't trust, I can't let others in. That wasn't the lesson. It's just something I've had to kind of, you know, realize. She just taught us to be able to handle ourselves. Um, and that means career. So she's, you know, my mom was a stay-at-home mom 
for a while when she got remarried and she homeschooled us for a couple of years and she was able to do that, but she still had a career to fall back on. Like when my stepdad was laid off, she was able to go back to work full time and help the family that way. And it was those types of lessons that my sister and I watched were like, you can lean on your male counterpart or your counterpart, but just know how to stand alone as well. I think those are amazing words. And you know, the word empowerment is tossed around a lot, but I think you've really encapsulated the real true meaning of what it means to be empowered. And you're right, it's standing on your own two feet and figuring out how to take the world by yourself, but also leveraging the support from a very loving family, which you're very fortunate that you have. I think that's that's fantastic. Any sort of thoughts and encouragement beyond what you've said from from your community themselves like can you remember any little words of wisdom growing up from this very supportive community that sort of are are with you today yeah words and they're very they're very you know they're few words but something every time we have tragedy happen even my brother's accident three it's now three years ago uh almost to the day and everyone flew in within 24 hours or drove in and they're there you know sitting in the in the hospital waiting room with us waiting for news on my brother i'll just use that as an example you know you're looking at them with tears in your eyes like they didn't all have to come within within less than 24 hours you have this group of almost 16 people just gathered around you and you're just like you don't need to do that and they they look at you every single time and they go it's what we do and when my engagement fell through even though the wedding didn't happen the whole family still came up the week of the wedding and you're just like crying you want to like smack everybody because you don't need all of the family there at one time necessarily or you don't have the check-ins but in the same breath it quells your your emotions and your heartache and your pain and they'll just stand there and they'll they'll do whatever they need and they're just like, it's what we do. And try and sight looking at how my, my grandparents were extremely um powerful and instrumental after my dad died. He had instructed them to please take care of Hope and Joyce, my mother. And they have just been a second set of parents, uh, you know, along the way. And every time they do something for me, I'm like, you guys don't have to do it. And I look, well, it's family. It's, it's it's like a no-brainer with my family to step in and support. And that means even when they don't necessarily agree with your decisions, or they're like, you know, honey, maybe there's a different way of going about it. They're still right. there when you're when you fall. And that is a true family. It's not turning your back when a decision is made or a life direction is is taken that may not line up with the traditional Armenian family values because they're very, very strict, very conservative, but it's still loving you anyway and giving you that emotional and and literal hug that we got you. So you talked about about the family issues around your father's death and the support that you've had from your community. And you briefly just mentioned your brother's accident. Can you just talk a little bit more about that, what that meant for your family? I hope he's doing better. And sort of any lessons learned from the support that you got from your community and how your community as well as your family banded together to support your brother. Sure. So my uh, my little brother, Luke, he is now almost 21, three years ago, May 29th, 2014, Luke hopped on a motorbike, and for whatever reason, he ended up going into a tree. The motorbike smashed his spine up against the tree. He was instantly paralyzed. We are a a family of a very strong faith. Uh, Everything is faith-based, and so immediately Luke was covered in prayer and positive thoughts, and the community just banded together. Luke was not supposed to make it past the night. Luke was never supposed to walk again. Luke was never supposed to feel waist down. And through 
prayer, positive thoughts, and Luke not giving up. He is now walking with braces and using the wheelchair for longer distances, but he's getting about mm-hmm. half an inch of nerve recovery per month, which is absolutely beautiful. So his his uh, injury site started above his um, upper rib cage, and now he can feel a little bit below his quad muscles. So we're getting there. And he's, while he's not a woman, and this is a woman's uh, recording, you know, community, he's, right, he's like right, right. a hero of mine. He's just, he's on fire. But when that happened, it was as though it was like a family death. We were mourning the loss of Luke not being able to walk. And because we are such a close-knit family, it it truly felt like a death. And we actually had to prepare for Luke to not be with us anymore because that was what they expected. But all of us banded together. My sister, mom, and I alternated spending the night at the hospital on and off for several months. He was in ICU and then transferred to a rehab facility. And all the while our community, both in Chicago, so the Armenian community, and then also our Michigan community banded together and supported us. What's amazing about my family is we conquer tragedy head on. We don't take time. We just, we just handle it. I mean, there's no period where we need to take a step back and just, you know, freak out. We just tackle it. So we did that month after month after month from ICU to the in-house rehab facility to outpatient therapy. This has been a long journey for everybody. It taught me it taught me two very important things. One is life is short and I got the offer to move to New York right after Luke's accident and I waited a little bit to make sure he was gonna, you know, come on the other side. But I'll never forget the day he looked at me and told me, Hope, it's time for you to spread your wings. You've been taking care of everyone else. It's time for you to take care of yourself. And he said, Life is short. I want you to remember life is short. And this is almost nine years old. He's almost nine years younger than me. And my little brother gave me a life lesson that will forever change my life. Is, you know, you see that all over life is short. But to see someone's life almost be cut short and them telling you to please go live on life. Like, you're done here. It was just the most powerful experience with Luke. I think that this is really incredible and very moving. And I'm obviously, I am really very happy that your brother's doing better. It's amazing. It's an amazing story. And actually, that leads me to a very related question, which is you have a very supportive community. We've been talking about this for the past few minutes. But what about others who don't have that kind of support network? How would you advise them to start building a supportive group of people that can band around them during good times and not good times? Well, when I moved to New York, I did not know a soul. I bought a one-way ticket, two suitcases, and I did not know a soul, even at work, nobody. So for the first time in my 26 years, I didn't have that support anymore, Um, and I was standing alone. And so... I am a firm believer that you will gravitate what you need in this life and what you need. If you put out positivity and and love and, you know, warmth, you're going to attract it. And so I I networked immediately. I would go to a coffee shop and become a regular and just try to build that community. Um, I joined a church out here. I got together with a women's group of empowerment or empowered women, uh, women in music. They're amazing. And there are all these, you know, strong women that, that are, we're a network. So you have to step outside of your comfort zone in order to find your new comfort zone. So in stepping out and networking and trying to figure out where I belong here in New York City, I've created a new community. So now I have this band of women that are my best friends there, my sisterhood out here. I would never have had it had I not put myself out there. 
and that's very important. We we stay within ourselves, and we kind of think that it'll find us, but in reality, I think it's also put it out there. So you talk about, you know, connecting with your church locally and connecting with networking groups. So in terms of this whole emotional process that you went through in terms of some of the family issues and then making the transition to New York and reconnecting with people, what emotions did you experience through that process of pursuing your dreams? In addition to the networking and connecting with a church in the area, what other tools did you use to help process your goals and desires to get to really where you are right now? You have a lot going on. I do. I have a lot going on. Well, this may not seem related to this question, but it definitely is. When Luke's accident happened, like I mentioned, we didn't have time to grieve. We just immediately, all hands on deck. And it stayed that way, which means that our emotions stayed pressed and we weren't able to process them. So when I got to New York, not knowing a soul, unfortunately, that is when those feelings and emotions and flashbacks and symptoms started to arise. I think, I don't know if it's because I was alone with my own thoughts or I was in a new place. And I have no idea what it was. But I began noticing that something was not right internally. And I could not figure out what it was. And I ended up seeing a therapist out here in Brooklyn. And she's the one that let me know, hey, it's it's time to focus on you. And it's time to live for you. And by dealing with that, and that's at that point when I was diagnosed with PTSD, by dealing with that and me healing a lot of the issues and, and trauma issues that, that my family and the community have like helped me through, by finally dealing with them, I have been able to have the tools needed to go this, this long haul and take on so many projects and do so many things. Um, and that may seem, seem weird, like, why, why would your mental health contribute to you being able to go network and, and do a best-selling book and do all this? It correlates with one another, I, I truly believe. Okay. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I I think that many of us are brought up to to just be so goal-oriented and focused on success. And, you know, you've had some significant issues and tragedies in your life. Other people have issues. But, you know, it's, it's almost easy to, to ignore them just to achieve your goals. But I think, to your point, you have to integrate your background, your emotions, your issues, as well as with some of goals that you want to achieve. It's, you know, it sounds like you went through this process of emotional integration. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of times in my words to my therapist, when she first diagnosed me with PTSD was, she's like, well, this is going to be really hard and you're going to have to slow down your life and your schedule a little bit. And I said, I don't have time for this. Like, you don't understand. I just moved to New York. I'm just trying to hold down the job. I, you know, I had all these things. And she's like, you don't understand. If you don't take care of it now, you're not going to be able to do what you're set to do later on. And it's so true. A year later, after intense treatment with her, I'm able to take on and travel more and do more and have more of a busy schedule. You know, I have three different jobs. I travel all over. I never would have had the mental, emotional, and physical capacity for that a year ago had I not dealt with my emotional demons. It, it truly, they go hand in hand. So it sounds like, you know, through this work with in therapy and through the support of your family, you're working on balancing your career focus and your personal well-being as well as downtime. So what are the things that you like to do, you know, when you have a free second and um, <laughs> how do you find time to do it? <laughs> you're a busy person. I'm so busy. Um, I love to dance. 
I like to take dance classes. I work out every single day. If I don't work out, you have like this really antsy type A person that like wants to run through a wall. I have so much energy and so much adrenaline, so I have to work out every day. I love spending time with my girlfriends. Obviously, there's always something to do in New York City. I mean, you you cannot be bored. I I've been bored bored since I was put on this earth, and this is the first time in my life in the city I'm never bored. So I. Always love exploring New York. I love to volunteer with any music-related projects in schools with children. Love volunteering at the shelter um, for for women and children. And then I try to get back home to Michigan to see my family whenever I can. And in my absolute off time, when I'm super, you know, connected with myself and feeling creative, I'm I'm writing. So I'm working on my next book. I blog weekly, and that keeps me busy. I'm trying to date here and there, but um, it's hard to find time <laughs> for that. And and uh, the dating world. Into 2017 is a jungle. So try to find time for that. So I want to go back to something and, and, you know, it it sounds like you're having an amazing time in New York and which is fabulous, but let's, let's talk about a couple of other things. So this is, I, I really want you to share your story a bit about the eating disorder that you experienced because I think that's a very powerful story and we know that unfortunately a lot of other young women in the country share this issue. We know that, you know, I've seen studies, um, you know, approximately 90% of women are unhappy with their bodies Mm -hmm. and, and resort to dieting and you know, I read a study from Dove, Real Truth About Beauty, that only 4% of women around the world consider themselves beautiful, which is so sad. So I think oh, it's important yeah. that we just talk about this for a minute. So, so if you could just talk about your experience, what happened, and how you got through it. Sure. Um, well, I, as we mentioned, I'm from an Armenian background. I'm also Hispanic. So I'm half Armenian, half Hispanic. And with that comes the curves, usually. Nine times out of ten, if you're one of, like, you're just curvy. And so from the moment I was, I started dancing when I was six years old, my mom would take me to dance class, and I would be among all these little toothpick six-year-olds, you know, and I'd be the one with the little booty already or the little the little stomach, and I was, like, and you know, the chunkier size, and I was so self-conscious, and my mom was always, like, you're beautiful, you're beautiful to me, you know, God made you just as you are. That only takes you so far as you know, hearing that, especially as you get into adolescence, because you don't feel beautiful. You're up, you know, you're walking around all these other, these other body types, and it just makes you feel awful about yourself. And so something I always struggled with, and I think, like I said, I think a big part of it was just like my nationality. Even if I worked out a ton, I'm still going to have my curve. So it's just, it's just been a level of acceptance. Um, but as I started noticing more and, and really being more in tune to, you know, what's on TV and, and the media and celebrities, it's like you have to look like that. That was my mindset when I was a teenager. You have to be a size zero with perfect skin. It, you know, that was just – and I think that's very common. And I began – so I, you know, I would just, you know, skip meals here and there, or I would binge eat because I was so depressed. And then the next couple of days, try not to eat. I mean, it was just so unhealthy. That began the start of it. Um, and I'm also blessed with uh, a sister who could probably be Heidi Klum's twin. So growing up with a girl that was like polar opposite of me, tall, skinny, beautiful, could be a model, like, you know right out of the womb, kind of comparing myself to that, you know, since she was born, like, okay, I don't look like that. Like, you know, I always feel a crappy about myself, days of, of meals. Um, and it was just such an unhealthy pattern. Um, and a couple of years ago, I ended up dating a personal trainer, and it really got me into fitness. 
to the point where I was able to finally be at peace with myself and how I look. You know, he was a great coach with that, and it was wonderful. However, because I was so obsessed with my physical appearance and my body type, it went from being a healthy hobby to an obsession. So I would work out a ton, take a ton of workout supplements, you know, be, go crazy with it. And, yeah, I was finally the size I wanted, but it was in an unhealthy way. So that accentuated my already existing issue. And and then it just kind of snowballed from there, and I dealt with it on and off. And then when, when my brother's tragedy hit, that was the perfect time for me to be like, okay, I'm just, no one's going to notice if I stop eating. We're all dealing with Luke stuff. No one's going to notice if I don't eat today or don't eat tomorrow, you know. So it was just very unhealthy on and off. And it wasn't until this last year that I'm not, I'm not taking a ton of diet or water pills to look skinny for something. Or and I don't shame myself when I look in the mirror. Like, are there improvements to be made? Absolutely. You know, we can always improve on our how I feel, how we look, or, or how we feel about ourselves. But we need to also love and accept ourselves as is, something that took me a really long time to do. And again, it's, it's not just, I see a lot of, you know, things all over social media that everyone's promoting it's okay to be obese like love yourself as is and I agree with that to a certain extent but then I also look at is if you're if you are considered obese then you're going in then you're dealing with a plethora of other health issues you know so it's important to just there's a it's moderation you know you don't have to and also let's not let's not shame those that were naturally born skinny like my sister like I, I hate when I see that too it's like they can't help it that they were born that way but it just let you know, stop looking to the right and left of you at what other women look like. Just look in the mirror, own it, and be happy with her. So did your family and friends realize that you were going through this? And if they did, you know, how did they respond to this? You know, they did. The, the trainer I was dating that I just discussed, we were engaged for a period of time. And during that time, I was the skinniest I've ever been in my entire life. I looked emaciated. I, I thought I looked great. You know, I was really proud of myself. But I will right. never forget it. At my bridal shower, uh, four people, it was a group, you know, four people took me aside at different times in the day, and they said, we're very concerned about you. You look too skinny. And I, I, I was like, thanks. You know, I, I thought that was the right. best compliment you can get. But then the week after and then, you know, over the summer leading to the wedding, people would come forward and be like, you don't look well. You look ill. Like, are you okay? And it was just, then it became more of like, you know, you took offense to it that people think you're, you're sick or something's wrong with you. But they were just, they were just loving. And I've learned along the way when I think, you know, try to talk to my friends or, or people that I see may have an issue. There's a certain way to approach them on it so that they don't feel like you're attacking them. So my suggestion for any woman woman that's trying to approach a loved one is, you know, approach it very delicately. Never try to pass judgment on it or anything like that. Just let them know that, you know, you just want to check in and make sure that that they're okay and that they're healthy. As far as receiving that sort of um, concern, always assume that they're approaching it from a place of love and not a place of a personal attack. An eating disorder can take so many forms, and that's something I didn't realize. It's not just running to throw up your food after you eat. It's justifying yourself why you don't need to eat that day because you have one too many meetings. And, you know, you feel a little bloated today. So, you're, you know, you're going to skip a couple meetings just so you feel better about yourself. Or it's eating way too much Shake Shack and, and then, oh, well, I already started, so I'm just going to binge eat. And I'm just going to have a shake and, and another fry. And then the next day, not getting out of bed because you feel so guilty you ate that much. Like, that's that's binge eating, and that's actually that's a form of eating disorder, of an eating disorder. 
it's lying to others that you ate that day or that you've been eating and you know that you've you've barely touched your food. You know, it, it doesn't have to necessarily be the level of bulimia right. or anorexia. So, Hope, at what point did you say, I need to do something about this, and, and what did you end up doing? Did you seek help, professional help? Um, I did. I uh, This is obviously something we worked on in therapy um, all last year. Mm-hmm. And then also, you know what, sometimes it's really hard to go to a professional. Sometimes people can't afford that. Sometimes people aren't comfortable Absolutely. with it. You know, ther- therapy is not for everybody, especially in our age group. A lot of times, you know, your health insurance doesn't even cover therapy. So it's like, well, I still need help. I still need love. I still need support. And um, I found two women in my life, one of which being my mother, that I sat down with her very emotional, very, I felt very shamed at the time, which, you know, now I just, I look back and I'm grateful I had that with her. And I said, I'm struggling with this. I don't want you to overreact. And I don't want you to call me up every day and make sure I, you know, what are you eating? Like, don't, but just let, I want to let you know I am struggling with this. This is an issue. I need you to hold me accountable and just know I'm dealing with it. And I will reach out to you when it's a rough day. And and I've had that um, that camaraderie with my mother over the last couple of years, which has been a really beautiful thing. That she'll check in, but she won't push. Um, and I know at the end of the day, I have her to hold me accountable. And she's kind of watching, like, hey. You're looking too thin or, you know, stuff like that. Um, find someone that you trust that you can divulge that to and know that they won't overreact. And when they do react, know it's out of love. So would you say that that's the biggest piece of advice that you can give people, um, which is speak a loving person when, you, when you're going through this? Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously an advocate for obtaining the best possible mental health. And so I, I, I love it when I see my friends go to seek professional help, like a therapist or a counselor of that nature. But like I said, it's not for everyone. So find someone that, you know, will hold you accountable, give some tough love, but not judge. And I think also in the religious community, that's kind of hard to find because we assume when we go to someone of faith, they're kind of kind of slammed on the God card on you. And then you shy away from divulging and actually being transparent. And so it's important to find someone that has that balance and is able to do both, support you and hold you accountable. So you talked about a relationship and your engagement, which became, it sounded um, unhealthy and toxic. Can you talk about that experience a little bit? I know it's very difficult to talk about, but anything you've learned from it, anything that you want to share with our listeners that can help them, because we know so many women are experiencing this issue. Absolutely. I was an overachiever. I had to get engaged twice before age 25. And I made such a <laughs> So when I, just, when I just spoke about my previous relationship um, to the one that was in the physical fitness, I, I'm not speaking to him when I speak or about him when I speak to the toxic relationship I was in. This was my first engagement. And he and I had a very codependent relationship from the time I was 15, he was 16 best friends on and off dating are we together we're not together i'm going to go do this thing i'm going to go do just you've ever seen the music video or heard the song love the way you lie by eminem and rihanna that is how i described us i he's the volcano and then i was the tornado i mean we brought out the absolute worst in each other but however we just over a decade of on and off we just could not let go the thought of of cutting ties with him in many different chapters in my life would bring me to the point of physical symptoms of not being able to breathe and not being able to leave my, like, oh, it it was such a a codependent situation on both ends. And when he enlisted in the military, the thought of losing my, my counterpart 
was so overwhelming for me with everything I was dealing with, with health issues and, and just other things personally. My eating disorder, just one thing after another, I could not lose them. And so um, he proposed to me, and I, I accepted. And that was a downhill battle to both of us dealing with a lot of dark times, a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, kind of, you know, not healthy in terms of how we communicated to one another, how he communicated with me. It just was very unhealthy. But in the same time, I was too scared to get out of it. I was too scared to leave what we both knew for the fear of the unknown. It, it just was very unhealthy. And when I moved here to New York, we were still on and off, back and forth. You know, are, what are we? Should we get back together? Just, and and um, through therapy, I was able to see that this it's just unhealthy. What was that aha moment that made you realize this is not a good relationship for me? This is hurting me. You have to look at your relationship and ask, what am I getting from it? And if you can say that they bring you more hurt and heartache than positivity and light, it's time to walk. And the aha moment was sitting there in the therapy's, in the therapist's office uh, doing kind of a pro and con thing, um, also listing all my physical symptoms that I get when, we, when he and I would argue or when he and I would speak on the phone or the physical symptoms I would get knowing that we would have to go spend a weekend together and interact knowing full well we would fight most of it. That's so unhealthy. But I had conditioned myself to thinking that, oh, that's just us. And it's kind of, it's passion, you know, and our society is so good at notating a toxic relationship. They mark it as passionate or they glorify it and glamorize it for some odd reason. Um, our society and pop culture has done that. And so I just thought, oh, we're just hot and heavy for each other. And when it's good, it's good. And it's bad, it's bad. And I had justified it for far too long. And so sitting there realizing this relationship is going to lead to my destruction and my demise if I don't walk away, it was just a very real moment for me. And so I picked up the phone after that session and I said, I'm sorry, I can no longer hear from you. As of today, I need you to pretend like I don't exist. And we have not spoken since. And, you know, I, I went through a period where I was second-guessing myself. but And I appreciate the positivity he did bring in my life when it was good. But you have to cut that tie. And, and we've somehow, like, we've been taught that it's okay to be friends with your exes. I believe it's very few and far between situations that you should you should do that. I think sure. otherwise it just, I think it just breeds a lot of time. You know, it, it opens the door for way too much to happen or resurface. Well, I think you're a very brave person, extremely brave. and. I guess, hearing from you, I can surmise that a lot of the support you had from your early life, your family, must have played some part in this. Would you would you say that's correct? Absolutely. There's a part in my book, which is fiction, but this, this part of the story is real. My grandpa, who, like I said, was very um, involved in my life when my dad passed away. He, I was staying with them one weekend um, a couple years ago, and I was on the phone with this now ex-boyfriend, and he was just yelling. I mean, just ramming in me, just, you know, the F this, F that, just, you know, very vocal, and my grandpa heard it, and I was trying to cover the phone because, God forbid, my grandpa hears a man raising his voice right. to me, right? And I got off the phone, and, and I just looked kind of ashamed, and I, I just, you know, tried to shove it off, you know, pass it off, and he looked at me, and he goes, if your father was alive, he would never want you to be in any sort of situation like that. We want better for you. Your father would have fought tooth and nail to have better for you. And that was um, that was actually when I called off the engagement to him because it was such a, like an aha moment. And, yes, obviously I, I went back because I had issues and I was like, you know, codependency. But, like, that was a huge moment. And my family, obviously they were going to love and support me regardless. 
but knowing that they felt that strongly, it, it gave me more, more strength to, to cut the court. And, you know, I'm not perfect either. I did not handle things in certain situations. You know, he, I definitely would get too, too loud or, you know, whatever I would, I would call passion. It, it really wasn't. It was just, we brought up the worst in each other. And so it was very important to cut that tie and having the family support definitely helped. But if you, if you don't have that family support, it doesn't mean you can't do it. It's just loving yourself enough to let go and know that once you let go, there's something beautiful and more amazing for you waiting on the other side. So you are incredibly accomplished. Let's talk about your career. I mean, you had to overcome so many challenges and look at where you are today. So let's talk about what you're doing. I certainly want to talk about your book a bit, but can you talk about your career? Sure. So I I started my own freelance digital marketing media company when I was 22, as you mentioned. All of my my clients, while I was living in Michigan at the time, all of them were remote-based. So I had over 100 clients over the span of five years all around the world. And one of them wanted to bring me on full-time. So I moved out to New York uh, to take, you know, take on work with them full-time. They were actually acquired by Sony. And so it was, it really helped me dive into the world of of marketing and, and PR and digital media in the bigger sectors, you know, the big leagues. And then I went on to work at Ralph Lauren doing similar work and the corporate life just was not for me. You are just a little fish in a big pond for, for me, at least for my personality type. Um, I felt like I was just one of, of many and I wasn't able to truly shine. And so I branched out and went back to independent contracting. And while doing that, a tech startup that you mentioned, Examine, they're based out of Chicago, but all 25 of us work around the country. They reached out to me via LinkedIn, which was so cool. And they're like, hey, can we interview you? I mean, I wasn't even looking for that job. They had, they had seen my profile, you know, seen my accomplishments. And that's how I obtained that job. So I, I'm still working with them. It's been a little over a year. And I do all of their event planning, anything PR, marketing, creatively driven. So I'm working with them. And the beauty of that is my boss doesn't care if I'm working from the beach, sipping a Mai Tai, as long as I get my work done. We can still video, we can still work, you know, do anything we need to as long as the work gets done. So it's allowed me to do these other projects like release a book or take on a couple independent artists and do their PR, go to see my family, go to visit Luke. It's allowed me to do that and really open my channels of creativity to to take on these projects I love. So let's talk about the book. And I love the title, obviously, Where Hope Lies. That's, <laughs> you know, perfect title. So tell me, what brought this on? What was the the idea around it? Well, um, we'll go with his fictional name because this is based on my actual story that I mentioned previously. My ex-fiance, we'll call him Vince because that's his name in the story. When Vince was overseas, and this is in real life, I kept a blog, and I didn't show it to him, but I was going through so much. And so he and I would video, and he'd be like, how's your day going? And I'd be like, it's great. And quite honestly, it was it was an awful day. I was dealing with so many health problems, so many, you know, mental health issues, just so much. So he, he would log off Skype, and I would just start blogging. I mean, I was, and this was on Tumblr at the time, I'd be like, it was an awful day. I dealt with this. I had the seizure, just you know, letting the computer just absorb all of this this trauma I was dealing with. And also, P.S., 
you know, you can't really tell them what's going on because they're fighting for your freedom. They're fighting for a mission. This is the was over in Afghanistan at the time. So I just had this network. And then the next morning, after you write, you know, you have your inbox full of other women that are going through the same thing. I'm dealing with depression. I'm dealing with anxiety. I don't have my person here. My, my family doesn't support this military relationship, things like that. And it just kind of snowballed. And by the time he got back, I had thousands of followers. It was called Diary of an Army Girlfriend. And I gave him, I gave him the password and the login. I go, I've been working on this. And he's like, you can't have this online. Like this, this gives too much details. Like it breaches security. You need to take it down. I was so sad. Well, I'm keeping the entries. Like fine. You know, I kept the entries and I use them as inspiration for this book. So many of the pieces you read in Where Hope Lies are actually from my blog that I kept in real life. And as I started piecing together those blog entries, real life things were happening in my own life, you know, dating the the other now ex-fiance, um, health, you know, battling other health issues, finding myself. Do you follow your fiance's career or your significant other's career or do you follow your own dreams? Like those life lessons I was unfolding, I would write about them and add them to this fictitious story. When my second ex-fiance or my yeah, now ex-fiance uh, walked through before the wedding, I was like, okay, I'm going on our honeymoon alone. So I did, um, and I went to the beach, and I wrote this book. I wrote more than more than half of this book. I finished it, so I want to say another 30,000 words. I did not stop writing. That was my therapy. I just could not stop writing if I wanted to. I stopped the whole time, just stopped, drank coffee, wrote this book. And that was in 2013 and in 2014, I worked on this and edited it. And then it was ready to come out on my birthday of last year, so March 12, 2015. And I just was dealing with so much with my PTSD, I could not release it. I mean, this story, while fiction, is a piece of my heart and soul. It is transparent. It is raw. And I couldn't do it. I was, what are people going to think? What if, you know, someone comes out of the woodwork? What, I was just not strong enough. So it has been sitting there this whole year. And then on International Women's Day of this year, March 8th, I was looking at the calendar and I had just finished another therapy session almost a year into it. And I go, it's time. It's, it's time for the world to hear my story. And within two days, it sold out on Amazon. And I'm getting stories, you know, from all over, all over the world now of, I can relate to you. And, and, I, and I'm in this character's head and I feel the same way. And how did you deal with it? And it has been the most beautiful, beautiful chapter. And it's closed with those chapters that I've written about and really helped heal me. People, people don't realize it, but every time that they get a message or they send me a message like that, it, it's just contributed to my healing and affirmation that this is what I was meant to do. The story is incredible. The book is incredible. And I guess I have a related question for you that um, that I know a lot of listeners may have. So, you know, many of us say, oh, I want to write a book. I have a book in me. I'm sure people want to hear my story, but you actually did it. So how? what do you say to our listeners who have the desire and the will to write a book, but maybe haven't flipped that switch yet? What what advice do you have for people? Well, it depends which route you go. I can't speak to the route of being picked up by a publishing company. Um, I had a couple off, offers, excuse me, for that, um, but they wanted to change too much in the story. And me being the control freak type A micromanager, I am like, no, 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 I don't, you can't change the story. The story, like I wrote it the way I wrote it, but I chose to be self-published and, you know, over 25% of Amazon's best-selling authors are now self-published. So I did go that route. 
It allowed me for a lot of control. My advice to you would be to make sure you get a good editor. I mean, this book has been edited so many times, and there's there's still some some typos and it's still some mess up. I'm like, oh, gosh, well, like, how did you not see this? But get yourself a good editor. Make sure it's, it's read through, not just by you, by many people. Get feedback and then build anticipation for it. Build that social, you know, that audience getting excited for it. My audience was, has been waiting for over a year for it. So when I finally dropped it, they were so excited to absorb it and read it. But whether it's a book or releasing a short film or releasing a project or launching your business, it sounds so cliche, but you just need to do it. You know, just just take the leap. You're going to have so many naysayers. You're going to have so many people telling you you can't do it or well, everyone's doing that. Every, in New York, everyone's an author. What's going to set you apart? What is going to be your it factor? Harness it and just do it. Take the leap and, and make it happen. You're the only person, I tell my friends this all the time, you are the only person in charge of your destiny. There's no, you are the you hold all of the control. It is up to you what you do with it. We're all given the same amount of hours in the day. We're all given the same um, outlets and, and channels. We just have to seek them out and utilize them. So you are completely in charge of your career and your goals and if you accomplish them or not. Your mom and dad really named you correctly. I mean, hope is the perfect <laughs> name for you. Um, Thank you so much. So here's my question, my final question, really. Um, do you have any parting words for our listeners? Anything that you want to say that maybe you didn't get a chance to say? Any words of wisdom that you want to mention? You're enough. Where you are in your life, you are enough. You don't need a new job title to define you. You don't need a counterpart, a significant other to complete you. Excuse me. You don't. You are enough. And I think when women finally realize that they need to meet themselves where they're at and love themselves where they're at, the sense of power and um, gives you a whole new meaning. Like I feel like I can take on the world right now. And I don't mean that in a pompous way. I mean that with humility, modesty. But I know now that I'm on my way to healing and I'm, I've worked through so many issues, I know that I'm enough and I can do anything I set my mind to. And when we have these labels that people have put on us or bad relationships where someone throws powerful words at you that you never forget, you somehow, when you look in the mirror, your value of yourself is lessened. And so something I keep trying to let women know is you're enough. You're enough to take yourself to the next level in your career, where you want to be with your body, your relationship, with your family. Just, you know, harness what you're good at, find your it factor, and use yourself as the motivation to propel forward. Thank you, Hope. I mean, it was really wonderful having you as our guest today. You are incredibly inspiring, and, you know, I've had shivers throughout our conversation, and, and I'm very grateful for your honesty and your wisdom, and I think that you have a lot to say, and, and we're all very grateful that you took the time out today to speak with us. And I also want to encourage my listeners to buy your book, Where Hope Lies. <laughs> it's amazing, and it's available on Amazon. So um, thank you again, Hope. And until next time, thank you for joining us for Mind of a Mentor, brought to you by likeabossgirls.com. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>